1: Welcome to the New Books
2: Network. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to the New Books Network Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Uh, Today I'm with uh, Jeff Sebo, Clinical Associate Professor of Environmental Studies, Affiliated Professor of Bioethics, Medical Ethics, Philosophy, and Law, and Director of Animal Studies, uh, Master's Program at New York University. He's currently on the Executive Committee at the New York University Center for Environmental and Animal Protection and the Advisory Board for the Animals in Context series at New York University Press. And today, we're gonna be talking about his new book from March 2020, Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves, Why Animals Matter for Pandemics, Climate Change, and Other Catastrophes from Oxford University Press. Hi, Jeff.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Great, so how, how are you doing today?
3: I am doing okay, starting to warm up a little bit in New York City, so hanging out in my apartment with my dog and my partner and getting a little bit of work done and talking to you, so pretty good today.
2: That sounds like a great day to talk about uh, animals, so uh, tell us a little bit about the project. Uh, how, how did you get into animals? Uh, it's not exactly, I'd say, the direct path for uh, for a philosopher
3: true. Although, although more and more philosophers are getting into animal ethics and politics and, and minds and other topics. So, so it is becoming a little bit more of a mainstream topic, but we have a little bit of a way, a way to go before it is dominant in, in philosophy. Uh, but I got into uh, animals in college. I, I took some philosophy classes and sociology classes and other classes where my professors took animal ethics and animal welfare and rights seriously. And so they exposed me to uh, information about what animals are like and what animal minds are like and and how humans are treating other animals and the ethics and politics of our treatment of other animals. And that was pretty transformative for me. And there was not too much animal advocacy going on at at Texas Christian University, which is where I went to college at the time. And and so there was an opening to to do some animal advocacy. And, And so both because of the power of the information and the arguments and because of the neglectedness of that topic in that place, I gravitated in that direction, and I held on to that through grad school and and that sustained interest cu- coupled with some happy accidents is is what led me to have a career in animal ethics.
2: Great. so um you know when when did this book start? when was the project founded?
3: I started working on this book in about 2017. That was I think when I got a contract with OUP to to write this book. And then I spent basically the next few years working on it. And and the book in general is about why animals matter for health and environmental issues like pandemics and climate change, both because our treatment of animals contributes to these issues, but then also because these issues can contribute to non-human suffering and death. And so we need to think about animals when we think about these health and environmental issues. And so I was working on it for A couple of years. But then, of course, we entered this period of major health and environmental crises that were obviously related to animals. When I was working on the the final draft of the book in in late 2019, early 2020, that was, of course, when the Australia bushfires were happening and drawing global attention to the fact that billions of of wild animals were uh, tragically dying in those fires. And of course, that was also when COVID-19 was starting. And at least according to some stories, it originated with our uh, treatment of animals in the wildlife trade. Of course, there are other stories too. And then the past few years have seen all sorts of interactions with animal issues. For instance, uh, the the need to uh, end the wildlife trade, end fur farming in order to mitigate the the risk of, of the spread of diseases and the vulnerabilities that, that animals have in these situations, because we would often call them uh, in order to prevent the spread of disease and respond to supply chain breakdown, so all of a sudden, this this book that I've been working on for a few years, uh, the the themes were were becoming very salient, I think, for for a lot of people because of these uh, extreme weather events and, of course, this global pandemic.
2: Great. So I, you know, why don't we why don't we dive into the book just a little bit to give, um, you know, before we talk maybe about some of the bigger picture of the book, you know, kind of, you know, why don't you give us a little bit, a little taste of, of at least where you're coming from as, as a normative position. Um, you know, I, I think some people might, you know, when they hear things about animal ethics or animal rights or this anything in this kind of area, get might, might be, get a little defensive in some sense. Uh, and, and, you know, well, and, and I don't think your argument's necessarily the, the usual kind of, you know, you no know, suffering utilitarian type. So, so why don't you just share a little bit for, for the skeptic out there who might be, uh, who <laughs> might be wondering.
3: Yeah, sure. So so one thing that makes this book different from other uh, books or, or, or kinds of arguments people might be thinking about is that I'm very much talking about what uh, collectives and governments should be doing in this book, as opposed to what individuals should be doing in terms of going vegan or engaging in other sorts of consumer or political activities. Of course, that is an important part of the equation, but I really wanted to focus on what we as a society should be doing in order to improve our interactions with with non-human animals. But I also wanted to show why animals matter for the types of health and environmental issues that we care about as humans. And, And so part of the book is about how our treatment of animals contributes to global health and environmental threats like pandemics and climate change that then, of course, harm humans and non-humans alike. And For example, uh, factory farming, industrial animal agriculture, deforestation, uh, conversion of, of natural spaces to agricultural land or other, other types of uh, artificial spaces, uh, or the wildlife trade, the, the extraction of wild animals from natural environments for human use. The, these are major drivers of both pandemics and climate change in ways that we can discuss if you want to. And so uh, so, so part of the book is about that and about how we need to reduce our use of animals uh, as part of our pandemic and climate change mitigation efforts. If we want to create a more resilient and sustainable world for humans, then we need to reduce our exploitation and extermination of other animals for that reason alone. But then the other half of the book is uh, more about the animals themselves and about how health and environmental threats like pandemics and climate change also then harm non-human animals, both directly and indirectly. They they harm non-human animals directly because uh, when outbreaks occur, animals can be susceptible to infectious diseases. When extreme weather events occur uh, as a result of climate change, animals can be vulnerable to floods and fires and heat waves and, and so on and so forth. And when major shocks hit the system, like outbreaks and fires and floods and so on, then animals can also be vulnerable to increased human violence and neglect. For example, when we call animals during disruptions, we, we kill them in mass in, in very painful, painful ways. And, and so that part of the book is is about those interactions. And a, and, and it makes a, a, an animal welfare case for uh, increasing our support for animals as part of our pandemic and climate change adaptation efforts. So, so in addition to reducing our use of them, as we mitigate these risks, uh, we can increase our support for them as we adapt to these risks. For example, when we ask how to build uh, new, more resilient and sustainable cities, and and food, and energy, and transportation systems. We can be asking, what can we do to make these uh, systems more accommodating for their non-human residents too? What what can we do to make transportation systems less risky for animals by by adding overpasses and underpasses or wildlife corridors? What what can we do to make urban environments less risky for animals by adding bird-friendly glass to new construction or or uh, certain habitats for them or or protections for them? These structural changes that can reduce the types of conflicts or, or needs that uh, humans and non-humans currently face uh, just naturally and organically uh, create create a, a sort of more harmonious, multi-species society. And so the book is really about that, um, how to meet our own health and climate targets and how to include animals in that conversation so we can be less violent to them, we can uh, contribute less to these crises, and then we can make it the case that these crises are less harmful to them as well.
2: So this is very wide reaching, I suppose, for a lot of audiences in that respect, right? I mean, you know, I think that's very unique to approach this topic, not from the kind of individual, you know, moral right kind of question, but, but really from, you know, as a society where we are, as a matter of fact, faced with these various sets of issues, we find ourselves deeply bound up with animals in a way that is just undeniable, but being in the world. And so you can look at it from the multiple different angles you present, the sort of, you know, instrumental one for those who are maybe just really want to focus on what's good for society and humans, while also at the same time arguing that for those interested in in seeing the welfare of animals as a kind of reduction of suffering that we ought to care about, um, we also can benefit that. Um, and so I think that is that is a very unique approach. and And so maybe to dive into a little bit um, you know, why don't why don't we talk about pick um you know pandemics or or climate change and why don't you maybe give us some of the facts um, and some of the just a couple reasons as to why we should look at it in this kind of
3: both ways. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so uh, for we, I mean, we can we can talk about both of them briefly. So, so as I said, there there are particular industries that are especially important here, including factory farming, deforestation, and the wildlife trade. And so, I can focus on factory farming and deforestation as examples here. So, factory farming very significantly increases the risk of pandemics and climate change because it essentially breeds. Uh, billions of of animals at a time. Uh, more more than a hundred billion farmed animals a year are currently killed in our uh, food systems, and and then close to a trillion, if not two or three trillion, wild animals in industrial fishing. So we breed very many animals, and then we we uh, put them in these large, uh, crowded, toxic spaces, uh, and then we. Administer high quantities of antibiotics or uh, other antimicrobials in order to suppress the spread of disease and stimulate growth, and and this is the ideal breeding ground for antibiotic or other antimicrobial resistant pathogens, uh, basically super bugs like COVID nineteen. Take a bunch of sick animals and put them all in a room together, make it a toxic space, and then. Administer a bunch of of antibiotics so that the the bacteria and viruses they have a lot of opportunity to evolve, mutate, and so on. Uh, so so they significantly increase the the risk of pandemics in that way, and they also significantly contribute to climate change because uh, we have to convert a bunch of land for agricultural use, both to grow the plants that animals eat uh, at, at a high loss of calories in the conversion of feed to flesh, and then give Give space for the animals to to exist, and that all consumes a lot of land uh, and then it, it emits a lot of greenhouse gases carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide uh, industrial animal agriculture is responsible for an estimated nine percent of global carbon dioxide emissions thirty seven percent global methane emissions, and sixty five percent global nitrous oxide emissions, which on one estimate adds up to about fourteen point five percent global human caused greenhouse gas emissions and then part of that story is that uh, factory farming is contributing to deforestation, which then also contributes to pandemics and climate change in various ways. Uh, So so deforestation can contribute to pandemics because when we clear land for human use, we can sometimes increase encounters between humans and wild animals who carry uh, zoonotic diseases. And uh, we reduce forested biodiversity and biodiversity can function as a buffer against the spread of diseases. So sometimes when you uh, reduce biodiversity in an area, you can make it easier for certain diseases to spread among remaining animals and then reach humans. And then similarly with climate change, forests are natural carbon sinks. They, they capture and store carbon dioxide in the ground. And so when you cut down a forest, you uh, not only release stored carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, but you diminish the planet's ability to capture and store carbon dioxide in the future. Uh, and so, so these industries are not only farming and killing trillions of non-human animals per year directly, unnecessarily, insofar as we have access to plant-based uh, alternatives, uh, but but are also then contributing to pandemics and climate change. And part of how factory farming is contributing to pandemics and climate change is via its contribution to deforestation, which then contributes to these threats all over again. So our our, our consumption of animals in general, exploitation and extermination of both farmed animals and wild animals <clears throat> through these industries is, is a leading driver of the very health and, and environmental threats that we are now realizing we need to get our acts together and deal with. Uh, and then the other side of the equation, as I said before, is, and, and I can go quicker here, but, but again, you know, uh, pandemics can uh, affect animals because animals can be Uh, susceptible to respiratory diseases. Climate change, of course, is going to affect animals. You know, this is a matter of ice caps melting and sea levels rising and and oceans becoming more acidic and temperatures changing and and coastal areas flooding and increasing the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events, uh, regional conflicts over land and water and and food and other resources and mass migrations for humans and non-humans. Obviously, this is all going to affect animals, Both because it can make their environments less hospitable, but also if they do venture out in search of new places to live or eat or or drink or anything else, then what do we do? (laughs) The same thing that we do with them in pandemics. We call them, in the case of pandemics, and in the case of climate change, we, we label them as invasive species and we kill them to, to protect our economic interests and, and other interests. So in all of these cases, animals are vulnerable to the same environmental threats that we are. And then when they try to respond to those threats, if they can, uh, we will often respond to that violently. And, and so for all of these reasons, uh, they are just trapped in this vicious cycle. We, we harm and kill them unnecessarily. It then contributes to these health and environmental crises that affect us and them. And then when that happens, we harm them all over again. So they really are having a hard time. And our behavior is causing us to have a hard time too. So those are the types of dynamics that I, I talk about. And, and to be clear, and, and we might turn to this soon, to be clear, I also have constructive suggestions. This is not entirely, uh, you know, me, me uh, talking about all the horrible things that are going on. Although, of course, you need to do a little bit of that as part of the setup. But there are things that we can and should be doing to make these situations much better for us and other animals at the same time, fortunately.
2: So I, you know, before we get to that, which is an important thing to to, to bookend and to make sure we, we do turn to towards the end, you know, I want to ask a little bit more about, um, about kind of the social relationships with animals. Um, you know, when you were talking about factory farming, you used this word toxic, which, mm-hmm. um, has a sort of dual meaning here because, you know, normally in the public sphere, we use the word toxic actually to refer to kind of social situations of maybe power True, dynamics yeah. and things. <laughs> but, but really, I mean, you meant it there, I think toxic in the kind of biochemical sense, like, like hazardous, you know, right. like
3: I did, but, it but you, I, I, if you were about to suggest that both, both senses of the term, fit then i agree with you
2: <laughs> right and and you know and i'm wondering kind of uh, you know something that we like to think about in, in sts is is kind of you know how how are the ways that that the world is influencing the ways that we think and and how is the ways we think actually being put back on the world and so even in this example of of factory farming of, of how we treat animals you know i'm i'm curious of you know if you know what kind of thoughts might then emerge for thinking about um, like the, the politics of this, the society part of this, of of you know, what does it mean that we are really killing you know sort of like millions of animals every year, and we can kind of know, I think it's entering the social consciousness. We kind of know that it's wrong. I think Netflix has really opened up the kind of opportunity for people to to engage in this line of, of line of thinking.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I really like the way that you set it up uh, by, by talking about both the social and biochemical dimensions of the toxicity. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I can answer your question with, I guess, another ambiguous term, which is that uh, the, part of the root cause of these problems, only part because, because there are many aspects of, of this problem, but, but part of the root cause of, of, of these problems is that we treat animals as objects, as property, as commodities, uh, in, in a dual sense of that term. Uh, socially, we frame them and describe them as objects and property and commodities. And, and you can see that in all aspects of our language and culture, right? We, we, we just we use the, the word it uh, to refer to animals instead of the word he, she or they in many situations, right? Uh, and, and we talk about in many languages, uh, animal flesh as things like meat, or or you know uh, chicken, not chickens, but chicken or pork, not uh, pigs but but pork, uh, beef, not cows, but beef, right we use we use language in all these ways to distance ourselves from the violence in which uh, we through our consumer behavior and other types of behavior are Complicit, and and this, of course, is not my point. This is an old point. It goes back to feminist care ethicists like Carol Adams and and other people who have been making this point over the years. Uh, we we distance ourselves from animals from their subjectivity, from their individuality, and from the the violence that we inflict on them by framing them as as objects who are, that are here for our use rather than as subjects who merit respect and compassion. But but then at the legal and political level, we also Literally treat them as objects because, under the law in most jurisdictions, you can either be a a subject or a person with the capacity for rights that are appropriate given your interests and needs, or you can be an object without the capacity for any rights at all. And right now, in most jurisdictions, including in the United States, non human animals have the legal, like the basic legal and political status of objects. Uh, And and of course, there are some animal protection laws, in in some places, quite strong animal protection laws. But fundamentally, these laws are the same types of laws as we might have over, you know, other sorts of property or matters of public interest that, that we happen to care about. Right. We protect animals in the same spirit that we protect paintings and statues when we care about them. We put some protection laws on the books, but fundamentally, they are objects that can be bought and sold and commodified. And so when we don't care about them, they have no legal or political resource. They, of course, have no legal or political representation. And and so both socially in the way that we cognize them, the way that we talk about them, the way that we think about them, and and, legally and politically, the the classifications that we attribute to them that uh, then determine the ways in which we can consider them under the law.
1: Find Reese's now at a store near you.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting there. I mean, the corporations who who actually handle, um, you know, a lot of the abuses that these animals suffer have more legal rights than, than animals. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, that is true. Uh, in, in U.S. law right now, the the uh, entities that can be legal persons are humans and uh stand-ins for human interests like corporations. So, so humans and corporations can be persons and non-humans have the same basic legal status as tables and chairs.
2: That, uh, I mean, I, I think that goes without saying what it says about, um, different legal interests, certainly. Um, so I'm, I'm curious then kind of, you know, what, what are you thinking about then in terms of some of these practical, um, like practical things that we address, right? I mean, I imagine there's, Mechanisms from law to um, the public sphere to civil society. Um, You know, why don't don't you give us an example from the book?
3: Yeah, sure. So, so I think that we can divide this into some more moderate things that we can do in the short term in order to improve the situation within existing structures and systems, and then there are more radical things that we can consider and discuss for the long run, where we might consider making alterations to our basic uh, structures and systems themselves. Uh, so so examples of the more moderate, uh, short-term things that we can do, as you say, it, it involves law and policy, but then also various kinds of social change. A big part is our food system, In addition to individuals uh, taking individual action by going vegan or engaging in in activism and advocacy of various kinds to the degree that you can given your individual circumstances, there are also things we can do to make that easier for individuals. For example, uh, uh, governments can use informational laws to uh, informational policy to get information out there about what animals are like and how humans are treating other animals and how that contributes to health and environmental issues. And uh, they can also use financial policies in order to shift subsidies away from conventional industrial animal agriculture and towards alternatives like plant agriculture and plant-based meat and cultivated meat. These are, relatively speaking, much more humane and healthful and sustainable food systems that can efficiently feed everybody without harming animals uh, or, or humans or the environment nearly as much. So, so shift subsidies from the bad kind to the good kind of food system and uh, also uh, regulate the food industry so that they have to treat animals and workers better so that they have to pay for the public health and environmental harms that they cause. And doing all of these things together will result in prices gradually going up. For harmful food products, uh, prices gradually going down for better food products. And, and so we can have this nice, just transition away from the bad kind of industry to the good kind of industry. And along the way, we can be investing in jobs programs, uh, helping workers and farmers transition so that uh, as with consumers, nobody needs to be deprived of, of food or a living wage uh, as as part of this transition, we we can convert to a better food system, and we can make sure everybody is taken care of, both as as workers and consumers along the way. Uh, and so on then, this question, sorry, of, go, go of, ahead. Yeah. yeah. So
2: so on this question of of food points, I I want to push mm-hmm. on this a little bit just to to see what your your thoughts are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know one, you know in the environmental studies literature. I'd say there's there's probably an equally large group um that's deeply concerned with sort of like single crop uh, agriculture, um the rise, say of, I'm thinking of like soybeans in Argentina kind of um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so i I'm curious kind of how one might then think about um this this food supply change. and I, and on the back of my mind is technology here. I mean it's sort of idea of absolutely yeah. of neoliberal economics here. and you know we yes, we could just move away from 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 animals and we could maybe um, you know maybe ideally it would be some more diverse crop system, but one might think just in the absence it might just increase the kind of single crop large scale agriculture that um, you know has I, I i don't want to say equivalent we don't need to weigh harms here but Carries with it great harm for environmental uh, studies too.
3: Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I think we we should weigh harms because that is where the answer is, right? Uh, the it, it is absolutely crucial to acknowledge, and and I think people in the vegan or animal uh, rights community are all, often sometimes bad uh, about acknowledging this. Uh, every food system causes harm. Every food system is in various ways violent. There, there is. Uh, Consumption of resources, uh, production of, of waste and pollution, harm to animals, for example, wild animals and the crops, exploitation of workers, all food systems have some degree of these types of, of harm. But of course, these are varying degrees of, of these types of harm. And so, so uh, there are a couple of things to say here. One is, first of all, as a baseline, uh, a world with industrial animal agriculture is much worse in all of these ways than a world without industrial animal agriculture, even with respect to plant agriculture, because you actually have to grow many more plants to feed farmed animals and then eat them <laughs> than you would have to grow in order to feed humans directly. So if you are worried about, for example, like monoculture, mono like plant agriculture, then then you should be first in line to get rid of industrial animal agriculture because that Is mainly where these these plant products are going, right? Um, And and then the other thing to say is, so so yes. uh, Generally speaking, plant agriculture, plant-based meat, cultivated meat are all better than industrial animal agriculture in these ways. But that is not to say that they are like beyond approach, reproach. We we can still critique. Uh, and and improve these food systems as well. And we can select among them. Uh, And and so I, I, I would definitely not say that a food system is just and healthful and sustainable simply in virtue of not being industrial animal agriculture. We can all agree that we should get rid of industrial animal agriculture. And then we should think really seriously about what combination of food systems we should be working to scale up uh, when, when we are replacing industrial animal agricultures, but, but yeah, I, so I I think that these are reasons to be thoughtful and selective and strategic about what kind of future food system we build, but they're not for a moment reasons to second guess the need to end industrial animal agriculture. That's
2: a, that's, that's a great, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I, I think a lot of people don't actually realize the extent to which, um, sort of monoculture crops actually are used mostly for feeding animals. Right. Um, you know, I think the soybeans in Argentina is, is a great example. If anything, I think a large portion of that is actually going towards like beef, uh, beef and cattle. Uh, yeah. Cattle raising, which is. Uh,
3: exactly. Exactly. Right. Right.
2: So, um, so I guess on this, on this last point, I, I want to maybe think a little bit about maybe more specifically some of those um, political Things right, so I mean, of course, there's a kind of regulation, there's a kind of market structure. Um, is there is there another sort of tool that that you might be thinking about?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so there there are a couple of different directions to take it in. I'll briefly gesture it at two, and and then if we have time, we can explore them further. And if not, no worries. Uh, one is there are just other uh, moderate things we can be doing in the short term in order to improve the situation as well. So I focused initially on improvements we can be making to our food system. But as I mentioned, th- this topic is much more expansive than our food system, right? It also includes uh, how how we interact with other animals like laboratory animals in research and wild animals who are vulnerable to fires and floods and so on. And there are various things we can do in order to, to address those issues too. One is that we can include animals in the impact assessments that inform policy decisions. And we can try to select policies in a wide range of of contexts that are co-beneficial for humans and other animals. Uh, And that includes in education and employment. We can improve education so that people learn more about the right way to relate to animals. And as we have jobs programs to, to build a resilient, sustainable future, we can train and employ people in jobs where they care for animals rather than harming animals. Uh, And then similarly with social services and infrastructure, we can ramp up veterinary medicine and those types of services for animals, and we can create better infrastructures for humans and non-humans to coexist with each other. And that way we won't find ourselves as much in these tragic circumstances where something bad is happening and we have no option but to kill animals in a really violent and painful way because we'll have other resources and options available to us at that point, right? Um, That's one direction to go in. And then the other direction to go in is thinking about the deeper, more structural changes that we need to be making in the long term. And that will have to do with things like uh, asking what type of legal and political status and representation should animals have? Should they be, in some sense, legal persons or subjects who can have legal rights and representation? Should they be, in some sense, Political citizens uh, or, or members of political communities with rights to representation in the legislative process and a right to reside in the territory they were born in and, and these sorts of uh, more political rights uh, and I and and that raises you know yet deeper questions about the very nature of our legal and political and economic systems like liberalism and democracy and capitalism uh, can these systems survive if if we want to build a, a more just an equitable multi-species future. And if they should survive, what would they look like? What would liberalism look like if it took the liberty of animals seriously? What would democracy look like if it took uh, the voices? and, and need for representation for animals seriously. And what would capitalism look like if animals could own things rather than be owned by things, <laughs> if they could, if they could, in some sense, have a right to their territory, for example. So those are the types of deeper long-term questions we need to be grappling with, even if it might be a little bit too ambitious to expect those changes to happen this year. So,
2: you yeah, know, so maybe my, my kind of last question, and of course, this is a bit forward-looking and I, you know, I'm not sure, um, even how much in this book you, you might've gotten into this question, but mm-hmm. you know I'm thinking about what, you know, what this book is calling for is as the title says, right? I mean, for animals to matter. And so I'm thinking about, you know, what taking seriously, what it might mean for animals to matter in society, you know, one, one thought that that came to mind and kind of hearing your, your broad ranging argument is, is a little bit about like an expanding kind of global consciousness, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's some histories, I think, of, of the 20th century and early 21st century of, you know, a, a growing social awareness of kind of our, our, our globalness, right? I mean, our kind mm-hmm. of, our, our networkness, our interconnectedness. And so, you know, as we're talking about animals, and we discussed earlier about this, you know, just massive ontological problem for people to think about animals as this other thing, this these objects... Um, You know, what 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 might it look like for them to really kind of matter in in the sense that you're thinking about, you know?
3: Yeah, well, I, I, I think we probably are not in a good position to say yet because we are still trapped so much in our current ways of, of thinking. But but I do, I, I like the question because I think it helps to think about positive visions for the future and not just negative dystopian visions for the future. And and so even if this is really far away from what it actually will look like, uh, I, I, I think it helps to kind of paint a picture of something we can be aspiring towards, right? And, and so what I imagine is something like a just multi-species political society. And you can think of it in terms of our current political arrangements or not. But if you did think of it in terms of our current political arrangements, it would look like a a system where um, humans are administering uh, a system that considers and represents the interests of everyone who resides in that system or everyone whose interests are impacted by that system in an equitable way. And that basically means that we would need to uh, allocate uh, a lot of resources for um, uh, protection of non-human animals and improving the the well-being of non-human animals. Uh, and we would also have a lot of laws on the books preventing people from harming and killing and otherwise being violent towards animals unnecessarily. And cultures would have shifted so that this is no longer a real cultural concern. It would seem obvious uh, at that point that we should treat animals with respect and compassion, and we would have reinterpreted our main cultural Practices and traditions in a way to, that is compatible with that, and there would still be conflict, of course, and there would still be need, but the the conflict and need would be um, dealt with in in a much more equitable and, and compassionate uh, and respectful way, and there would be less of it overall because all of these structural interventions would be in place that that lessens uh, the the degree of of conflict and need, uh, and and so those are the sorts of futures that I'm imagining. But as I said, I, I don't think that we can really say concretely what that should look like yet. And so we should just try to approach that future incrementally by, by making progress and seeking more justice in each generation and learning a little bit more about what works and doesn't work along the way so that future generations can be empowered. They can have more knowledge, more power, more political will, and they can have a, a clearer sense of what it could actually look like to, to build and then live in a just multi-species society.
2: So, so where do you go from this now so what's next for you and your and <laughs> your research I mean after after a well-deserved break I suppose
3: yeah right at least a little bit um so so a, a couple of things one one is that I've been working on some projects to trace out some of the implications of these arguments for particular policy frameworks like one health or the green New deal or the UN sustainable development goals and and so in each of those cases uh, I think that it would be be beneficial to make these kinds of general points in that in that particular context and then to offer new interpretations and applications of these frameworks that take seriously uh, the the role that animals should be playing in these conversations uh, and then the other maybe maybe more interesting answer or or maybe more um uh, alienating answer <laughs> is is that uh, I, I'm also interested in pushing the boundaries of of this kind of moral circle expansion by asking about the moral status of even more neglected populations like invertebrates ranging from octopuses to insects, uh, and then even on the horizon, maybe not yet, but in twenty or thirty or forty years, uh, advanced artificial intelligences that might at that point be sophisticated enough to. Be reasonably likely to be conscious and sentient, and, and have welfare or interests of their own. So I'm I'm very interested in thinking about the nature of consciousness, the nature of sentience, um, who all out there might matter, and and what kind of weird future we might be facing if we have to share the planet not only with other non-human animals ranging from chimpanzees to nematodes, but then also all of these other uh, digital uh, conscious or sentient beings who we would have created, uh, and and then could be at risk of exploiting and exterminating all over again in the same way that we currently are with the animals that we create. So I really want to be thinking ahead to some of those issues in addition to working on some of these issues now.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, We've been talking with Jeff Sebo about his new book, Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves, Why Animals Matter for Pandemics, Climate Change and Other Catastrophes from Oxford University Press. Uh, Thank you so much for your time.
3: Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. Really appreciate it.